Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Let's do it. Cool. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Claire Giroux. We're at Brooks. It's May 25th, 2022. Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rich. And thank you for the splash of wine. Of course. Uh, first question to get us started is why wine? Yeah, so... I really decided this at the young age of 18, um, which wasn't really a career path that um, was anywhere on my radar. I grew up in Mississippi in a very small town that was actually a dry county until about 10 years ago. (laughs) So there wasn't really any footsteps to follow and sort of envision this lifestyle. Um, But I was studying chemistry in college and and I thought I wanted to make perfume and I think still dream of doing at some point. Um, but then found that winemaking allowed me to continue that love and interest in aromatic science and also um, have a toe in the food world that I sort of grew up around. My family is all um, very food-centric and in the food business in some sort of facet um, in the South and in New Orleans. And so I kind of got to grow up around that lifestyle and it sort of allowed me to continue being in that. And also get to work with plants and be outside. And sort of realized early on that if I could get into wine, that I could merge all those things, get out of the lab more, and be outside and enjoy nature. So that was the initial um, inspiration, and yeah, I decided that very early on, and then just have rolled with it, and I think that that my um, initial hunch for that really has remained true, and and I I love that, that wine. So growing up in in a place like that, how did you even come to realize that winemaking was something you could do? So I was studying uh, chemistry at Appalachian State University in North Carolina, and the school was starting a winemaking sort of fermentation science program, um, and it was through the chemistry department. And so I was really their first student to kind of move through this program, and so we were all kind of figuring out together. Um, But I loved it, and I, you know, was taking sort of rigorous chemistry and physics courses during the day, and um, lots of math and science, but then wine in the evenings, and that allowed me to exercise that more um, artistic and I think um, more tangible side of chemistry for me and and really get to sort of play with these aromatics and understand them and learn my palate and and expand that so that's how I got into it Um, just happened to fall in my lap be in the right place at the right time and then from there um, well while I was in school I was managing a vineyard in the summertime I sold wine I really did every other side of the business except to make wine um, until I came to Oregon in 2010 and did my first vintage out here um, when I was 23. We'll come back to that in a second, but I'm curious about wine education, both formal and informal. Obviously, you're the, the, the first student in a program like that is an interesting place to be. How did you find yourself learning about wine? What did you find most sort of interesting and impactful about wine education, both formal in school and also just learning about it on the side? Definitely, it was, a, it was a bit of both. Uh, my professors were, one was a, a chemistry professor, and um, he was a really brilliant guy, and, and we were sort of, you know, he was my advisor, and, and we were kind of almost designing this program together in a way. Um, and then another was um, from the wine business, and so I really got a good taste of like the business side of, of the industry, um, working sort of setting under him, and um, 
he was able to help me make some good connections um, in sort of the area and really tipped me off to an opportunity to sell wine for a really great wine shop in the area in the summer. And through that, I made some connections to um, that eventually led me to Oregon. But to really answer your question, I would say that definitely um, it was trial by fire in terms of education. Um, but that was really great. I really got to take my daytime learning in organic chemistry and apply it in the evenings in a way that seemed more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also do a lot of self-learning and exploration on my own time and, and learning by doing. And I think that that's always been my, my best way of learning, um, preferred style. So really learning about wine from selling it and learning about vineyards from working in them and eventually learning about winemaking from doing the work. And um, I love that this business really that this work is such a practice in a way that I think um, we're all able to continue learning over the years and, and sort of build that as you go. And, um, so. so before we get you to Oregon, you mentioned you kind of had done everything else except for winemaking yeah. before that. So tell me about your experience managing a vineyard. Tell me about your experience selling wine. What did you learn and what did you, what excited you about the wine business that wanted to, made you want to keep going? Yeah, I think that I was, um, my first job in wine was uh, managing a little vineyard in the summertime, and it was a young young vineyard. It was only two acres, and I was out there by myself, and so it was a lot of work, and I realized early on, like, wow, I've got to do this well and do this quickly and um, help train these vines, and they were quite vigorous, so there was a lot going on, and, um, and it was exciting, and uh, I think my mom at the time was sort of like, there's no way she's going to stick this out. This is a lot of hard work outside, and it's going to be hot and humid, and it was, but I loved it, actually, and I thought that it was really um, rewarding work to sort of work through the season and then see the vineyard into harvest at the end of the year, and I, I thought that was really um, special for me to to have that good experience. Um, the next summer, I took off and started making uh, selling wine, and in the area that I was living was quite a bit, um, there was a lot of tourism influx in summertime, it was in the mountains of North Carolina, and so um, really sort of learning people's palates, understanding what they were looking for, um, finding ways to help them, and I think doing what I considered pretty easy sales. People were coming to me for my opinion, and. Um, which I was sort of learning on the fly too. And I think that was really interesting for me to sort of gauge, well, this may be a wine that I really enjoy, but this customer may like a different wine. Mm-hmm. And so helping them find what they're looking for um, was really sort of a, a fun challenge that I really, I really loved. And just the exposure to so many wines was a really great part of the job and um, helped me to broaden my palate and my understanding mm-hmm. of my own palate too, so. Yeah, tell me about that. Tell me about sort of developing a palate while you're also developing a sales. Like, tell me about that kind of at the same time. How are you developing your palate and, and what point did you feel the ability, the confidence to recommend, to, to understand someone else's palate and make recommendations for them? Yeah, I would say that um, took some time. Um, again, growing up in a family that was very food-centric, um, my mom is a really amazing cook and, and we, would always taste a lot of things in the kitchen, and, and she, being from a family um, that really for uh, generations is from Louisiana, um, we cooked a lot together in the kitchen, and a lot of these things that we make, like gumbo and etouffee, we're sort of building, um, I don't want to say a sauce, but you're sort of building that sort of flavor balance, and, and looking for that depth of flavor and intensity and um, dimension, and so, we would taste together a lot as we're over the stove, and so I sort of learned to like watch things evolve, and you know, as I'm tasting them as I go, and and that was kind of how I also like use my observer eye and watching my palate evolve. Mm-hmm. 
and then looking for what I found balanced in their wine. And um, certainly I still use that skill when I'm making Riesling, for example, I'm trying to find this balance point of like acid tension and um, fruit profile, aromatics, and, uh, and for example, sometimes with sugar um, imbalance. And, and it can be a really lovely marriage when you can take all those things and make them sort of come together in the right way. So um, I would say it was kind of jumping in the deep end and I wasn't initially comfortable, but I realized that, you know, people um, were open to try things and, and maybe I didn't make the right suggestion initially, but they came back to me anyway and they were like, hey, this is what I liked better, what I didn't like about it. And so mm -hmm. then I was learning. And um, probably, I would say, it took like two or three years before I was really confident selling wine. Um, but I was doing it on a part-time basis and so it wasn't sort of, you know, it was in the summertime. Mm -hmm. I think that that would have maybe um, sped up quicker had I been doing it year-round. But um, yeah, it was great. And then by the time I left North Carolina, I had graduated. I had spent time in New Zealand overseas after college. My best friend and I bought a van and lived down there for almost eight months. and. Just sort of traveled around and lived a really um, fun and um, I would say just sort of transient on the road and in the mountains and surfing and just a really good lifestyle for that time and worked in some vineyards along the way, um, tasted a bunch of wines down there that were really inspiring and, and just fell in love with New Zealand in general. Um, but came back to the U.S. and moved back to Western North Carolina in Asheville and sold wine there for about six months and, and had a really great job and probably could have enjoyed staying there for years past that point but decided it was you know it was time for me to go ahead and, and do what I thought that I wanted to do which was make wine ultimately <laughs> so um, connected with a friend that I had made through selling wine in the summer in um, Banner Elk and then she was out in Oregon and had an opportunity in Sonoma and an opportunity up here and I chose Oregon and so I think that that was um, really uh, fate in the right way and, and really upon landing in Oregon um, really just even driving through the gorge getting here you know the first time you drive through the gorge and you see Mount Hood just emerge you're like oh my gosh I have to pull over this is amazing and um, and then sort of being just immediately wowed by the place and the people and um, the abundance of fresh food and um, good seafood which is important to me uh, you know a lot of things aligned and I just sort of felt like this is a special place and I want to be here so um, I did the first vintage here in 2010 and um, yeah, I did another in 2012 at ERAF, um, made some good friends there who I still consider friends in the industry and um, from that point I, I went out and sort of traveled and, and did harvest stints overseas for, um, for about a year and then decided okay it was time to put down roots and pack my bags finally after numerous years on the road and um, settled back into the valley in 2014. So. What made you at that point in your life when you were, before you came to Oregon, what made you think that winemaking was the thing for you? Um, again, it let me take that interest in um, aromatic science. I really love um, really lovely ester and uh, terpene compounds and enjoying all those aromatics and sort of um, picking them out in the glass and understanding um, how they got there or maybe what varietals have these more than others or, or why certain vineyards express them over others or or even certain clones may express certain things um, more I think is really interesting for me and I got to sort of play with that and then also make a natural product that was a little less um, synthesized in the lab mm -hmm. and, and again the outside and so really sort of emerged this role for me of my love for the outdoors and then my love for aromatic science and 
Um, yeah, that's really why I thought Mummy can be what I wanted to do. I had no idea at the time um, the physicality of the job and certainly um, how challenging of an industry it would be to get in initially. Um, but it's been such a, a great challenge and I've met so many wonderful people who've been supportive along the way and, um, you know, just one of those things I think that when you sort of realize you're on a path and the obstacles just sort of rolled themselves out of the way for you um, with with hard work and, and a lot of luck, I would say, um, mm -hmm. as you realize you're, you're moving in a new direction. So I think that gave me the confidence. So you mentioned your first time here, it was 2010, first harvest in Oregon. So where did, where did you end up for your first harvest and, and what did you think of your first harvest? I loved it. I was super fortunate that I got to work for Patrick Taylor at Canis Feast in Carleton. Um, Patrick was like, you know, you're coming from the furthest away in the country, so I'm going to keep you on the longest. And I was like, okay, you know, and so he brought me out in August, and I think most of us realized that was a, that was a late vintage, and we were actually working with fruit from Washington for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I got a really unique experience in the Valley, and I was working with, gosh, like 17 or 18, I think Bordelais and Rhone varietals and Italian varietals, and a little bit of Pinot Noir from Meredith Mitchell. Um, which ended up being a really inspiring uh, vineyard site for me to want to be in Oregon. Um, and Patrick was great and just a really good teacher and threw me into the deep end and let me do all of the things. Um, I think I spent my first week washing barrels with his full-time staff. And then I think right after that, he pretty much sent me up to Washington in a, <laughs> like a 30-foot you know, U-Haul truck and was like, go take these bends to Washington. And I was, you know, here's, a, here's an atlas and figure it out. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, and so it was fun, it was full on, and I just was really um, overwhelmed in the right way, you know, and I felt like I grew so much during that first vintage of just sort of understanding and putting um, the pieces together and sort of what I'd read about and learned about in class actually into um, really experiencing it and understanding why we're doing certain things um, and being able to ask a lot of questions, and that was great. Everyone that I worked with um, was experienced around me, so I was able to get a lot of different feedback about people's experiences. Um, and just learn how cool people are out here in the industry and how generous they are at sharing their knowledge and um, and also just showing a good time, you know, and, and sort of treating you like you're a guest and um, not just here to sort of do the manual labor of the work. Mm -hmm. So um, that was really amazing experience and, and made me sort of truly consider that maybe if I... Um, that if I could eventually make wine in the U.S. one day, that I would want to do it here in the Willamette Valley. So at that time, again, I had only had a small amount of experience with Pinot Noir. Um, I came back to the Valley in 2012 and worked at ERAF and wanted to do that because I wanted to work for a larger winery at the time so I could gain the skills of utilizing um, all the equipment mm -hmm. that I didn't know how to use, learning to drive forklifts, operating big presses, um, doing large transfers and, um, and all those things that uh, I wanted to have those skills under my belt before I went overseas and traveled so that I could be prepared for whatever was gonna come my way. Um, so that was, that was at least the intention and I had a great time. I met some really uh, talented people there that I got to work for. Um, 2012 was an amazing quality vintage and I honestly, I think that despite working at the biggest winery I'd ever worked for, um, it's still true to this day. It felt like the smoothest vintage and the easiest vintage um, work-wise. And so it was a really good time. And mm -hmm. it also got um, to have a balance of social life that year and, and get out in town and meet a lot of people in the Valley who are also in the industry in my age. And that sort of re-inspired me to want to be here. And um, yeah, just sort of feel certain that this is the place. Mm -hmm. So 
I knew that I wanted to end up here, but I was like, you know, I have more to see, more to learn, and instead of going back to school to get a master's degree, I think I want to get that master's degree really on the road by learning to do, um, to make wine and, and, and from a variety of different styles and winemakers and regions. And mm -hmm. so I did a very foolish thing, I think, and that, um, or maybe naive thing. I just, I sort of started emailing cold call to all my heroes, you know, and just was like, why not? So I, um, sent, uh, an email to some people that I really, um, admire and respect even to this day and in, in Austria in the Wachau region who make uh, beautiful Riesling and, and Grunerwald Liener and couldn't believe it that they wrote me back and asked me how long I wanted to come for and I just was sort of stunned and was like however long you'll have me for and so I made plans um, sort of early in 2013 that I would take off for Austria that fall and um, and had one of the best experiences just um, in terms of sort of the combination of working with a really his, like storied uh, historic estate producing some amazing world-class wines um, and um, and ultimately finding a real deep love for Riesling mm. and so that vintage was really impactful for me um, the Canole family where I worked uh, was truly just generous in their hosting treated me like family um, and again, just offered me an amazing opportunity. I just couldn't believe that it was really um, offered to me. So that was a really important vintage. I got to taste a lot around Austria. I got to also spend a lot of time in the mountains in Austria, which was great for me too. So it was really a balance of doing the things that I love, which was hiking and being in the mountains and then getting to make um, beautiful white wines. And, and so that was really um, awesome. I um, The foolish part comes in and that I decided that I was gonna work an interim vintage before my spring vintage that I had lined up in New Zealand and so I decided to go down to South Africa and um, which was also a really great experience for me and um, left that January for the Swartland region which is in the Western Cape a couple hours north um, of Cape Town and um, went to work for a young guy who was a really uh, famous natural winemaker and at the time, and, and still I think he's widely respected. Um, and, and Craig was really kind of a game changer in the, really in the country. And this is sort of early on, I would say in the natural wine movement, it's 2013 again. Um, well, actually January, 2014. So I went down to work for Craig, saw winemaking done in some wildly opposite ways than I had ever seen and experienced and really learned some interesting tricks that I still, I don't want to say tricks, but um, techniques that I still use this day and, and just saw things done in a totally different way. And also got to work um, in a warm climate and, and work with different varietals. I got to work with Chenin Blanc, which I truly love and am passionate about as a varietal. Um, Syrah and Senso and um, even some Zinfandel and Pinotage. I mean, we're doing all kinds of really fun and unique things with those, with those varieties. Um, it was a really culturally enriching experience. Um, I think that it was overwhelming at times, but but certainly a beautiful country and really, really, really beautiful people um, to work on alongside. So I did that. I had a week in between that vintage finishing and then my next one starting in New Zealand. And um, so I just, you know, we got on a plane and I flew to Christchurch and then landed in North Canterbury um, and ended up working for a guy named Theo Coles, um, who's remained a sort of a mentor to me over the years. and. Um, a really great guy to work for and uh, we made at the place I was working at Peter Noir and Riesling and Chardonnay and sort of like a little aromatic white blend and 
and you know, a lot of pieces came together for me that I had been sort of holding and, and really sort of mulling over at the time. Um, putting all those things to play in, in one place was really cool. So. Um, those are my main experiences sort of overseas. I came back to the U.S. again in 14, um, worked a vintage for a friend in Carleton, and then upon finishing that, uh, approached Brooks and have been here full time really ever since. Um, I've gone back to New Zealand since for a quick sort of stint working for the same guy, helping him get a new facility started, which I don't know why, maybe it's a little bit masochistic, but I love setting up the, the fires of, of really um, getting new facilities set up and, and, um, and underway. So we sort of got that rolling for him in a new project and, and that was a really fun challenge and um, good time to hang out again, so. It's <laughs> covered a lot there and I'll come, I wanna come back to Brooks, but you mentioned um, Meredith Mitchell Vineyard and, and the Pinot, mm. and Pinot Noir. So tell me about that connection and what was important about that to you. Well, I didn't meet um, the owners until actually several years ago at IPNC, and I was just so delighted to be able to tell them that their vineyard, um, really, I, the wines I had from that site um, just spoke to me in a way that I was like, wow, you know, like I think that that sort of made me find the interest in Pinot Noir that maybe I hadn't um, sort of been bitten by fully before. Mm -hmm. And I just loved those wines. They just were really um, beautiful, really floral, um, lots of like dense fruit, but also like light and, um, and lithe and had great acid tension again. And I just thought they were really elegant wines and mm. um, was fortunate that I even got to work with it my first vintage. Um, unfortunately, I haven't ever since then, but I think that there's many examples of beautiful wines that have come from that site. Um, I do work with Highland Vineyard, which is nearby and that um, can have a similar expression in a lot of ways. And, and so I think that neighborhood of McMinnville AVA is, is doing some really cool stuff. And I think we'll see more good things from that area in the future, Sam. So at this point, you, you mentioned recently had become a big, big, a big thing mm -hmm. for you. So, and obviously that led you here. So tell me about Riesling and it's kind of, it's, it's grip on you. What, what was exciting about it for you? And what did you kind of foresee yourself being able to do with Riesling? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think that it, Riesling um, is such a special varietal in terms of, um, really in so many ways, I find it so adaptable and where it can grow in the world um, and still make really compelling wines. Um, I think that aromatically Riesling has a lot of complexity on its own and, and doesn't really need any sort of um, firm coaxing to, to showcase its, its better sides. Um, I think really raising winemaking is, is more about upholding the integrity of the fruit than, than really sort of um, putting your sort of firm stamp on, on it stylistically. And so I really love that sort of purity of expression. Um, and in that way, I think that Riesling is really transparent of where it's grown. And um, I think can almost be sort of the counterpart to Pinot Noir and, and that's sort of its ability um, mm -hmm. to show that. So I didn't really know what that would mean for me. I knew that I wanted to be in Oregon. Um, I still really wanted to make Pinot Noir and wanted to be in this area. Um, and if I could make Riesling, that was a bonus too. And so when I reached out to Brooks, it was really just out of interest and um, they happened to be growing at the time. And so I didn't know that there would be a place for me here. In fact, there really wasn't, but they sort of said yes anyway. And then took me on and um, almost right away gave me um, 
real sort of responsibility with managing their relationships with our growers here. And um, that was sort of a different challenge for me in really understanding um, and managing relationships with farmers who've been doing this for 50 years and then people who are just getting into the industry and um, all these different AVAs in the valley that we work with and understanding these sites and different farming methods and really just building that sort of trust with people um, was a really fun and unique time, I think, to be um, in, my, in my career and I, and I loved it and it still continues to be one of my most rewarding parts of my job. Um, we have 30 vineyards, roughly, in total that we work with every year, and our own is included in that. Um, but just sort of getting to these people over the years and, and really um, their lives and their history and the history of these vineyards and, and why they've planted the sites where they've planted them and the varietals they've chosen and um, why they continue to work with us at Brooks and, and, and what sort of makes everyone passionate about growing Riesling and Pinot Noir, but you know, you really have to be passionate about growing Riesling to do it. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for any of us, <laughs> but we do it anyway. Um, and so understanding what that drive is for a lot of people, I think was, um, and is still is sort of fun. And so um, that was my initial role here was grower liaison. And um, then sort of by the end of that summer, the first summer, which was 2015, I joined the team in the, in the cellar for harvest and um, sort of just never let Chris kick me back out. So <laughs> that's how I'm here. So I'm gonna back up for just a second. I'm curious about before you got here, you obviously had worked a lot of places, worked for a lot of people mm -hmm. with a lot, of, a lot of different varietals, a lot of different sort of styles, philosophies. Did you feel that you had developed your own sort of style philosophy at that point? Like if you, if you were making wine or growing grapes, did you have a, a preferences at this point for how you'd want to do it and, and, and kind of how you, would in, how you would imprint your style on it? Or were you still kind of looking for what your, what, what your kind of signature would be? That's a good question. I think at the time I developed a lot of idealistic ideas about what I would like to do, um, but ultimately knew that, um, you know, I wanted to come back and work for more people. I was still sort of young in the industry and, um, I think it was good to be impressionable and then learn under people. Um, but definitely, sure, yeah, I had some firm ideas of what I wanted to do. Um, but you know, I think when you start to make wine and you start to be in charge of real um, responsibility and make decisions, um, things can kind of shift in a way. And I think that you can remain true to those ideals and, and hopefully you do, but um, you've got to learn to adapt as well too. And, and so I've really sort of been I think um, challenged by that working as like an employed full-time winemaker you know what I was seeing in all these places was what was going on during harvest but not sort of the evolution of the wines and the finishing of the wines and that's a really important step in the winemaking process and so really sticking somewhere full-time year-round um, increased my learning dramatically and um, and sort of allowed me to continue sort of challenging those ideas mm -hmm. you know ultimately so um, I think a lot of my winemaking ideals align with what we're doing at Brooks and, and I feel really creatively supported and that has been just amazing and I think unique and um, just super special and I feel really grateful for that. So Chris and I kind of started off working together with very different backgrounds and very different perspectives and sometimes very different palettes, um, but we're better for it. And I think that we've come to that place where we sort of realized that we're just complimenting each other in a really good way. and. Um, and ultimately, I think really enjoy that, you know, in, in sort of like a ribbing kind of way um, that we, you know, we're just coming from different places and 
and usually the best answer is somewhere in the middle between the two of us. Mm -hmm. So you talk about grower relations being the, f the first thing you did here, and it's 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 an interesting way to enter into a new place because you get to see all of the all of the sites and all of the things. And what did you learn about the places that worked had worked with Brooks and and sort of the vineyards? AVAs in the area, what, what was your kind of takeaway from what was happening in the Willamette Valley? Um, so, again, early on it was really just getting to know the people and, mm -hmm. and the reasons why and sort of just asking questions and, and not really making any firm decisions and demands of people, you know, but then upon building sort of that trust, I think, with people, we were able to sort of make a little bit more impact in what was happening farming-wise. And I think one of the best things that I've learned along the way is that your initial impressions of people can always change and, 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 and maybe not right. Um, and I've had some growers who've been farmers for, again, over 50 years and really generational farmers um, who I thought would never sort of change their practices, come around and, um, and we've been able to sort of um, reapproach things in their sites together. And really one of the best parts of that has been seeing new excitement and their sort of um, learning of, of doing things differently and, and seeing a sort of a new like energy in their step and um, in fact one person in particular um, for the first year that we sort of helped convert his farm from conventional farming to organics and, and the winery sort of applying our own biodynamics um, onto that site he was coming to me like almost every day with a new article about this and that and you know and I didn't always have the answer I mean a lot of times I did I'm like oh we'll do this or you know whatever and then but in a way we were sort of getting excited together mm -hmm. you know and so that was really 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 special um and still is and I think that um just sort of understanding that slowing down and taking time to build long-term relationships is really I think the surviving force of, of so many businesses here and certainly has gotten us through a lot of tumultuous times that we've had in, in vintages of late and um, and understanding that everyone that's sort of involved in this business as a stakeholder is, um, you know, we're really all in this together and, and we're sort of kind of a greater family, mm -hmm. if we will. And we, I take a lot of pride in sort of the way we work with people and, and treating them as such and, and, and vitally important to our business, and they are, so. You mentioned Chris, and of course, it'd be kind of your first time full time in a in a cellar, uh, and stick, you say seeing the whole process. So tell me about building that relationship with him, and and sort of what you could what you felt you could bring to the table, and what you've kind of learned in the process of working here full time. Yeah, so I think that you know, um, Chris has had so many different life experiences before making wine. And I think that's so interesting. I mean, my background really was coming out of school with an intention to make wine. Um, but of course, not knowing what I was doing. And Chris came to the table in, in a different sort of like accident fashion, um, really through meeting Jimmy Brooks and um, starting to help out selling wine on the weekends and then eventually being sort of called into the cellar at Will McKenzie and um, helping Jimmy and those two together went on and helped Mesara get started with their winemaking at their site and Chris just comes to the table with a really amazing diverse skill set of um, mechanical aspects of winemaking and really doing good work and being so capable with just any sort of scenario of making something happen I mean even when you're up against the wall I mean he is always um, 
he's smooth and calm in any storm and he can fix things. I'm just amazed. Sometimes I'll, I'll be, you know, in a real head scratcher situation where you're like, all right, well, man, I mean, this is totally broke beyond fixing. And Chris just lights up like a candle and he comes over and gets excited for the opportunity. And I've learned so much by looking over his shoulder and fixing electrical issues. Um, welding on the spot, uh, putting joints and things that weren't there before to hold them together. I mean, just all kinds of stuff that I really otherwise would never have had the exposure to mm -hmm. if not working for someone like him. And uh, he's really amazing. He always continually blows me away at what he can do just on the spot. Um, and so I think that sort of his tenacity has been really inspiring for me and, um, and just his sort of work ethic. He's so committed. He's so loyal. And very, very, very hardworking. And I think that that's what we initially had in common is that we we're both very hardworking and have a lot of pride in that. And so um, despite having different opinions and what we wanted to do, we both respect each other's work ethic and that was sort of our common mm -hmm. ground. And then in that way have found trust in each other and have learned that together we can actually achieve quite a lot over the years. And with the support of Janie, I mean, uh, she's just been such an amazing person to work for in terms of um, just kind of giving Chris and I the reins to, to just handle the winemaking and, and giving us that trust fully. And so um, so we have. And so, again, you know, initially in the early years, we're sort of learning each other's styles and, and sort of disagreeing with each other. But now we sort of just kind of lean into the middle ground with each other. And I think that's been a really special development um, to sort of lean into, yeah. So. As your role has evolved here, what are the favorite parts of the work for you now? What do you yeah. look forward to the most? All of it. I think that um, there's a side of harvest that I think a lot of us sort of um, sometimes maybe sort of in a joking way, sort of like, oh gosh, harvest is coming, you know, harvest is coming and kind of like... Um, um, batten down the hatches for whatever the wild ride ahead is, but um, I really, I really do love harvest. I think that's what initially made me fall in love with winemaking is, is the work during harvest. It asks a lot of you. It asks you to dig deeper constantly, um, to roll with punches, um, and I think that sort of in my nature, I really want to plan things out ahead of time and um, have a game plan, and then really having to sort of learn that you can have those things sort of set in place, but then ultimately you're going to have to deal with what you're handed. In. And that's been really sort of fun um, side of, of making wine and, and sort of learning how to interact and sort of respond to different vintages. I really love that aspect of, of working with such a an amazing natural product that's so indicative of the season it's grown in and really wanting to ultimately highlight that and not sort of work around it. And um, yeah, I think that that is such an important part of the job. I think that there are certainly other challenges that I think match harvest. Um, certainly we're at Brooks, we're bottling nearly all spring and into summer. And so I think finishing wine can also be quite challenging and sort of getting things done and um, and, and, and putting wines into bottle the way that you want them and um, keeping the works really precise and, and as you want it to be. And so that's a fun challenge. But again, I keep coming back to like my growers and developing those relationships. And I think ultimately um, it's been some of the most rewarding work for me and mm -hmm. really getting to sort of be involved in the farming to the extent that I am and especially overseeing the farming of our site here. That's not 
why I got into the industry, but certainly a huge part of what keeps me in mm -hmm. winemaking. So. Mm -hmm. You talked early on about the sort of the kind of the magic of finding like the balance in a bottle of wine. So tell me about, uh, especially we'll focus on Riesling. So what should a Riesling have in it, in your opinion? Mm -hmm. what, is it, what does a Riesling look like? <clears throat> and what is the role that you play in making that kind of finished product? I never wanted to like sort of say and dictate what a wine should be like. I think that, um, again, sort of as a Riesling winemaker, it's mostly your job to farm well, make a lot of the decisions in the field and um, bring the fruit in and treat it with the respect that it deserves and uphold the integrity of the wine and usher it along in a way that can um, allow all those aromatics and complexity in the wine sort of showcase in its, in its best. And that's almost like a, like a role of just like preservation. I think that that is really kind of unique. And, and I would say like in contrast to things like Chardonnay, where you're sort of like building as you're going, um, it's sort of almost the opposite of that. And I think that that um, can be what I love about Riesling. But certainly there are stylistic choices that we make. And I, you know, one of them is how do we want this wine to end up? Do we want this wine to ferment dry? Do we want to reserve some sugar here so that we can sort of find a balance point? You know, in a cool vintage, maybe we want to like fill out the palate with a little bit more body and maybe we want to balance the high acidity that's in, in solution. So there's a lot of decisions that we make that do impact the style of the wine. And, and you know, we have numerous years of experience working with the vineyards we work with and we have 15 different raising sites in total. So I think that we've developed some sort of like understandings of maybe like what those sites should showcase um, like and, and maybe like what the style of those wines need to be. But we're also constantly adapting and maybe um, that's different in, in different seasons and um, maybe different in different soil types and different clones. And, and so that sort of tinkering in that way is fun. And, and maybe it was the right call, maybe it wasn't. But we, but we tried something out and we learned from it. And um, ultimately, we're just trying to make wines that we want to drink and people enjoy. And, and um, with the greater intention of making wines that will age and, and showcase that um, really special ageability of Riesling that isn't found in all white wines. So, yeah. So what we're talking about Riesling, you mentioned earlier that it's people have to love it to, 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 to grow it, to make it, because it's not like the, the easiest necessarily to sell. I'm curious about mm. the, obviously Brooks is known for Riesling and has been for some time, sure. but I'm curious about sort of customer reaction to, uh, or, or your kind of understanding of Riesling on the market, how, how Riesling is uh, in, in the Oregon wine industry, and, and if you've seen that change at all while you've been here. Yeah, I would say, um, what I've seen change in the recent years in, in the Oregon wine industry um, in terms of in terms of Riesling is is not necessarily an increase of number of acres planted, but certainly an increased desire from winemakers to work with the varietal, and and that's exciting. I think that um, you know Riesling is kind of a winemaker's grape, and that we all want to drink it. Um, <laughs> people that love wine, for the most part, appreciate Riesling. Um, and uh, so I think that there's, you know, if, if there's wines that you love to drink, of course, you probably want to try your hand at making them. And so there is definitely, I think, more desire for more fruit, um, you know, to be available. Um, and I hope that that will translate to more plantings. Um, but, you know, I think that what I really hope for the Valley is that we'll see more diversity in plantings here, that we won't put all of our eggs in just two or three baskets and that we'll have sort of an expansion beyond what we've 
always just done here. Um, certainly Pinot Noir works, works well for this region, and especially in certain AVAs and in sort of pockets of the valley, um, Pinot Noir is really special. Um, but I, I think that, like, of course Chardonnay is, is beautiful in this area, and I, I'm so, um, I admire those who've really done a great job of showcasing that. Um, we do almost everything but Chardonnay here, and I, you know, it's, I like to make Chardonnay. I think people sort of think, oh, if you love Riesling, you can't love Chardonnay, and that's not true. <laughs> um, maybe that's true for my boss, Chris, but I think for me, you know, I'd love to work with it again. I think it's a special varietal, too, and, and also can be certainly very age-worthy um, if made if made to do so. Um, I kind of lost track of the question, though, so where were we going? Just about where Riesling's kind of, where Riesling fits in the Willamette Valley and, and if it's yeah. So I think in that regard, it's changed. You know, I think that there's more demand for winemakers to make the varietal, um, to make those wines. I'm seeing uh, fruit prices go up, which is great. I think that that can encourage growers to put in more acres. Um, I'm hoping that Brooks can help with that encouragement, and we're trying to do that. Um, the marketplace, I think, is open to more things now than ever before, and I think that's changed with um, sort of the age and, and generation of of the majority of the wine drinkers in this country and so people are sort of open to a lot more things being from a place or just to try new things and I think honestly once you pour reason for people that's well made I mean it's it's kind of a turning point for a lot of folks and I love that ability here and that we really sort of I don't know I like to say sort of spread the gospel of Riesling um, but really just you know I can always find that if someone comes in the, in the door and is like yeah I don't really drink Riesling I don't like sweet wines or I don't like there's something here for everybody, and, and I love pouring through a range of, of styles of Riesling um, and watching them find a wine that totally changes their mind, and, and we get to do it again and again and, and make that educational, um, and then they get to take that piece with them forever, and then they may try out other Rieslings from other producers and other regions in the world and expand their own knowledge and enjoyment, so I think that's really special um, to sort of change those preconceived notions is, is really fun. But again, I mean, it's definitely, it's a challenge, and I think that it's never been easy to sell Riesling in the U.S. Um, I don't know if it will ever be easy, um, but I think in ways maybe it's easier now than it has been in the past, so. I like your desire to be like the gateway Riesling for people. Like, you'll be <laughs> the Riesling true. that turns their I love that. That's I awesome. Hope. That's awesome. I um, so I want to talk about, uh, you mentioned sort of the last few years and the, and the, the many challenges of the last few years. So I want to talk oh, about yeah. 20, 2020 for a moment and mm. um, sort of uh, the kind of the, the double whammy of the, the pandemic and, and the, the harvest fires that year. Tell me about 2020 for you and, and for the, the, the team here at Brooks. How did you how did you make it through? What kind of changes did you have to make mm. and what were kind of the, 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 the decisions you had to make in real time along the way? Yeah, that was... Um gosh, hard for everyone for so many different reasons. And I think that, you know, at the time, we were all dealing with a, for one, unforeseen situation. I think that it was very realistic to think at some point we would go through a scenario like that, but I don't think many of us were prepared for it to happen quite so soon. But that's the, com you know, that's usually the, the case with natural disasters, right? Um, so, you know, I think that for me, especially, um, about 20% of our fruit is, is a state fruit, so we source quite a bit. And a lot of these pieces that we source are, you know, sometimes maybe an acre or two um, at a site. So there's just a lot of people that we work with. Mm -hmm. and, and so for me, having these real strong relationships and connections um, 
you know, it was, it was emotional in so many ways to um, make those phone calls and say, you know, I think we're not going to take this fruit and um, here's how we can approach this together to move forward in a way that's going to sustain everybody. And um, I feel very fortunate that we were able to retain our growers, take care of them, um, and see that most of the fruit was picked and, and if not brought into this winery, sent to other wineries that wanted to work with it. So definitely it was kind of like the onset of beginning of pandemic where it was like every day felt like a year you know just the waves of emotion that you would go through and just sort of the grasping of um, understanding of what what needed to happen next and and who needed to know about it and how we were going to respond and um, it was it was a tough ride um, we ultimately made some wine and um, I think that my sort of way of coping with what we were up against was just to sort of double down and learn as much as we could you know to sort of learn our way through it and that would be sort of the way to um, deal with the, the intensity of the situation and you know one of the rewards for me was was finally um, being able to do my own like work again like working with a small enough amount of fruit that I could be out doing my own pump overs and my own sort of um, sorting of fruit and and just kind of have that real intimate relationship with the wines again where I'm the one who's sort of managing the whole fermentation and, and my team having that sort of same experience and and that was really lovely. Um, it definitely was different for us, you know, going forward in the spring to decide that we were going to taste through things constantly and then maybe we would bottle them and maybe we wouldn't bottle them. Um, and definitely these things were made in junction with um, sort of Janie, who is our, our main salesperson, and sort of what her take was on the business and, and, and what she wanted to have happen. And so decisions, you know, ultimately come down to involving a lot of people. And um, I think we pivoted in the way that made sense for our company and ultimately took care of everyone sort of involved. And I'm really proud of that. Um, but certainly it was, it was an emotional time. And I had lived, um, <clears throat> grown up around hurricanes you know, as a kid and certainly lived through like a number of natural disasters that were really impacting on people's lives around them but living through a wildfire is certainly um, a different experience in that you know storms come and pass earthquakes come and pass but living through fires are really intense and in that you just don't know when this is going to be over and you don't know how much you're going to lose and I think that seeing our beautiful playgrounds around us burn and, and realize the ash that's in the sky raining down on you as you're sampling fruit is coming from trees and animals and places that you love and, and, and sort of the emotions of that is it's equally as difficult as deciding that maybe you won't pick the fruit. Mm -hmm. So um, there was just a lot. And um, was very, very, very grateful to have a lovely vintage in 2021. Um, and I think that, you know, many of us will kind of decide that any vintage is a great vintage um, as long as there's not smoke at this point. So it's given a new perspective on, on what makes a great year, mm -hmm. you know. How did you feel the industry in general handled the, the 2020 harvest and, 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 ha and what changes have you seen sort of come out of it, if any? Yeah, sure. I think, um, I think there's been shifts in people's business models, um, really, and that's a response to 2020 as a whole, not even just to uh, the fires, but certainly um, the pandemic is, is part of it. I think as um, labor issues have arisen and really increased, um, people have had to shift kind of and pivot. And 
Some have been really quickly able to do so, some have been slower um, to do so, but ultimately we've all had to adapt and, and I think sort of reapproach what we were doing before. And um, I think a lot of us have come out stronger because of it and um, have also been able to sort of sit down and take the time to sort of understand why this work is important to us and, um, and what we're really here to do. And I think that, um, has, I think, fueled a new desire, especially in me, but I think also in others, and, and sort of wanting to make this region, um, or just to display the special um, aspects of this region and to share that with others, and understand how incredibly lucky we are to do this work. Um, and though it may be challenging, and there's never really any downtime, and you know, I think, what is time off even really, you know? Um, <laughs> But but I think um, lean into and enjoy that um, this is a very special place on the earth and, and, and what we're able to do is, is bring joy to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And um, and there's so many reasons for doing the work. So I think ultimately people's business models have had to change. Certainly, um, I hope there are more people out there with insurance. Um, there's risk involved in farming and as we see climate change continue to bring out more variability in seasons, um, you know, that risk exposure is certainly going to increase, I think, as we go forward. And, and I know that's scary, um, but there are still reasons to do it. Um, and I think that, that, you know, yeah, I think that there will be more change in terms of how we respond going forward. So I think we're just setting out in that new path of normalcy, whatever that will mean. <laughs> it feels like the beginning of it. So. Very much does. Um, on that note, um, what do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? What, what, what's, what's to come and, and what are you maybe looking forward to and mm. maybe what are you afraid of? Well, I think that, um, I don't know that being afraid of really lends to a lot of um, great things. I think that responding and just in, in trying to find ways to um, adapt is, is the best way forward, but certainly we're seeing a lot of growth. You know, and I think that that is um, kind of like you said, you know, there's there's things to look forward to with that. Maybe there's things to sort of be a little fearful of with that or at least a little bit reserved to the idea of. Um, but it does feel like a very sort of exciting time to be here. Um, there's a lot of newcomers into town. There's a lot of new plantings going in. There's a lot of new wineries um, springing up around us. And, and that's offering a lot of opportunities to winemakers. Um, I think it's... Um, also interesting to see how the community and the face of this place will change um, or maybe remain true to itself and I hope that that's the case. Certainly, like we said earlier, you know, I think as the, the climate sort of changes, um, farming adaptations will, will too and I'm, I'm certainly interested to see um, what the future of this area is growing. You know, are we sticking with just the same few varietals that we're farming now or are we diversifying that? Um, and, and how can that work in tandem with what the demand is in the marketplace from consumers? So um, I think, I hope what I see is that we are farming more responsibly, continuing to push the boundaries of, of how well we can take care of and steward the land mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of make that a main priority for all of us as farmers and um, going forward. So I hope that we see really even greater commitment to, to um, farming in a way that is um, beneficial for future generations above all. What about for the future for yourself? Mm, um, 
You know, again, I, I think that um, what surprised me and my joy in this in this work is is not necessarily what I set out and the reasons why, and that's been such a pleasant surprise. I think that um, I really enjoy being involved in farming and, um, and and working with my growers. So I hope that I will continue to lean even further in that direction. Um, I want to diversify the varietals that I'm working with. Uh, Brooks has been supportive of that. We have put in some plantings that have sort of like branched out from what we've been normally doing, which has been sort of previously limited to Pinot Noir and aromatic whites, um, which we have great love for here. I certainly love making Pinot Noir, but there are other varietals that I want to try my hand at as well and, and see how they work in the valley. So we're sort of making strides in that direction and planting some new things. Um, and certainly some things responded well to the frost this year and some things maybe did not, but, um, but there's things to be learned, you know? And so I think that we'll, um, that's the opportunity that we have and, and that's just really great to um, take that knowledge and, and go forward. So I hope that we'll see increased diversity um, with myself and sort of what I'm getting to, to work with. I hope that I um, continue to sort of make wines are transparent of this amazing place and um, and get to stay in the industry and, and continue to make wine and, and um, stay passionate about the work. Mm -hmm. so. And are we going to see a perfume make, uh, making at some point? <laughs> that would be... Uh, you know, it's it's funny. I think that um, the real like irony of the situation is that being in the wine industry and everyone um, sort of retaining sensitivity of our palates and our and our noses, um, it's almost like perfume is, is too much for me these days. <laughs> and I certainly get agitated when I smell someone walk by with perfume on, and when I'm in a space that I'm trying to make wine or enjoy wines, and and so it's. I don't quite, you know, like um, wear perfume much anymore. I don't really have places to wear it anymore. I just wear it for myself sometimes around the house, but it's kind of like um, something that I really thought that I wanted to do that just totally kind of um, does not mesh well with, with what I really do. And so I think that I, I really um, certainly love to, to build some things from some natural extracts and, and have those be fun um, scents that I enjoy and, and wear and utilize and share. But Ultimately, I find just as much joy in the complexity and aromatics of wine, and so this is sort of a direction that has matched my lifestyle much mm -hmm. more appropriately, and, and the enjoying of food and wine and sort of the culture. Um, I think the wine world is certainly a better fit for me than the perfume world, so. All right, last question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, if someone were to ask you for your advice or words of wisdom on entering the Oregon wine industry, yeah. what would you tell them? Um, that's a good question. You know, it depends on which facet you want to be in. But I think that really working in all facets of the industry is important to sort of understand where you land. Um, certainly taking your time and, and learning to uh, be a careful observer, ask questions, work for different people, um, travel, drink as many cool and interesting and simulating wines as you can get your hands on. Um, Gosh, there's so much, you know, and I'll probably think of like 30 things after this, but there's just so many ways I think that you can make this um, be part of your life and your reality. And I think that um, connecting with people and sort of really asking for mentorship is a really good way of going about it. Um, but really digging your head into books is also really important and, and, and really learning, knowing your, knowing your stuff and um, tasting your wines and, and certainly um, 
taking the time to apprentice and to learn into others, I think, is is really important way to succeed in being a really great winemaker. It's fantastic advice for almost anything, actually. That's, I love that. Just like words of wisdom. Uh, Slow down. <laughs> Slow down and enjoy it. Uh, all the questions I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I think we, you know, we covered a lot. And I um, thank you for the opportunity to to speak with you. And thank you for doing this work. I think it's, you know, this area is so special. And there's so many amazing people that have given a lot to it. I think that sort of capturing their spirit and capturing the work that's gone on to really make this place a success is really important work. So thank you for doing it. Well, thank you very much. That's nice to hear. And we uh, obviously love what we do. So it's hard, hard to beat. All right. Well, thank, thank you so you. much for hosting us here, for finding this great spot that we finally found for this interview. <laughs> and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast